even though from a top line perspective, hotels are performing probably as good, if not a little bit better than they did in 19, that's just, that's just top line. That's just saying the occupancy is, is better than it was. And generally the average daily rate that you're paying per night for a room is probably a little bit higher than it was in 19. But nobody talks about, you know, if you will, under the sheets, right? <laughs> you get down to the bottom of that balance sheet and, and you're looking at the NOI line and you've got rising labor uh, by, a, by a significant factor. You got interest rates that have you know, nearly tripled. That's, that's major NOI margin reduction. That compression is kind of those things where I describe it. It's like, look, you're just outrunning the alligator that's closest to you. That's it. You're just, you're just outrunning it. Yep. And right now, frankly, in the hotel business, you kind of take that win and you go, let's, <laughs> let's beat inflation and let's keep going because a lot of other assets aren't doing that because you're in a fixed lease for 10 years. Our lease is having to be a day and a half. Welcome to the Fort Podcast. I'm Chris Powers, and on this show, I talk to some of the most fascinating minds in business and discuss important topics in the worlds of real estate, entrepreneurship, investing, and more. To learn more, visit thefortpod.com. That's thefortpod.com. I just got done recording uh, with a really good friend of mine out of Dallas, Dupree Scoville, who is the CIO of Woodbine Development. Uh, Woodbine is one of the leaders in hospitality and hotel development across the country. They just celebrated their 50-year anniversary. And so we start there. We talk a lot about the history of how this company was built in partnership with uh, one of the dynasty families of Dallas, the Hunt family. We have a really cool conversation about how our fathers have impacted us. Um, we recorded this two days after Father's Day. And so just really interesting about how fathers and great men in our lives have impacted us. Then we talk a lot about how they look at investing in hotels, the different types of hotels, how they create value, how they look at investments. And then we kind of wrap it up on a discussion about today's market. So thanks for continuing to join me. And I think you'll really love this show. Hey guys, I want to update you a little bit on Fort Capital. We are still acquiring Class B Industrial throughout Texas and the Sun Belt. We're looking to buy deals between 15 and up to 250 million. We're looking for portfolios now. We offer industry-leading incentives, which you can see on our website, that include an additional half a point commission for off-market deals. One thing we found was that our historical contract to close ratio is 98%. So if we're making a contract, we're getting it closed. We have a robust team to deliver an on-time smooth closing. And you can see all this at fortcapitallp.com backslash deal dash incentive. Thank you so much. All right. I sent you some of the notes. Let's just start with kind of your story growing up and kind of how you got to where you are at Woodbine today. Yeah, sure. Short version. Um, grew up in Dallas, born and raised there. Kind of followed the footsteps of my dad and my dad before him. So okay. or hit my grandfather. So uh, w- we went to... My three brothers and my dad, we went to the same elementary school, the same middle school, the same high school, the same college. We were in the same fraternity. We all played football at Tech. It was a pretty, pretty preordained track. Uh, (laughs) Wasn't necessarily pressure to do that. It was just kind of the way that that it unfolded. But um, and then we grew up in an interesting environment. We grew up in Preston Hollow. Like I said, we were public school kids the whole way through. And then my grandfather was, uh, he was a big presence in Dallas. He was a neat guy, but he was, I mean, 
when you think about Golden Gloves, when you think about the Cowboys, when you think about Cotton Bowl, when you think about even some part of the Texas Rangers, he he in some shape, way, or form was involved with getting those, uh, bringing those to Dallas. And so uh, he was a guy, I always loved this quote. He, he would say, you know, people always talk about, you know, that they'll thank me or, or you know, the, this is what he would say, but he would say, look, th- there's no way I could ever repay Dallas for what Dallas has done for him. And so we grew up Dallas people. Yeah. Although I will say this, <laughs> being in Fort Worth, I was in a meeting here one time <laughs> and I, I was probably wearing this hat and, uh, and I was hanging out with some guys and they're like, Hey, this is Dupree. He's from Woodbine. He's from Dallas, but he's not a Dallas guy. <laughs> I was like, uh, I was like, I think, I think that's a compliment, but, uh, but so anyway, that's kind of our, that's kind of our story. We ended up, I'm an, ended up going to Texas tech after that, went to go work for Trammell Crow, worked for Trammell Crow for about five years, then went to grad school in the West coast and assumed I would come right back to Dallas. We ended up going, staying in LA because I had a mentor, a guy named Lou Wolf, a remarkable guy. Lou Wolf is like a legend in the hotel business, among many other things, including owning the Oakland A's and all this other fun stuff. But Lou convinced me to come down and office with him. And he was kind of one of those guys who said, look, just office with me, show me the deals you're working on. Let's compare notes on the things you're doing. You'll office right next to me. And it was like having an office next to Trammell Crow. I mean, it was like that kind of experience where you got that old school apprenticeship type of mentorship. And two years turned to five years, turned to 10 years on the West Coast until finally my brother and I were going through a process to buy Woodbine from my dad. There was a series of milestones, the last of which was me coming back to Dallas before we kind of closed the purchase. And so... That's effectively what led us back to Dallas in 2019, right before the pandemic. We were here, fortunately, to kind of really get in the trenches when the hotel business was going through its worst period ever. So, hello world. I want to dissect this a little bit. Just real quick, who did you play under at Tech? Mike Leach. Okay. I was hoping you were going to say that. Oh, we got a dozen stories there. What, obviously, our you know, our condolences to Mike, but what an amazing guy that transformed football. And you were kind of at the be- you were at the beginning of this like Mike Leach story. What very front. what do you have in you from Mike Leach that will be with you forever? So well, there's a lot. <laughs> I mean, look, I think a sense of humor is important. Like that's what I mean, and he always had that. But you would not describe Mike Leach and, and this is not being critical, but there are very few players that would describe Mike Leach as a player's coach that would say that's a they, they, that that wasn't necessarily how he endeared himself to yeah. his players. And that's that's not right or wrong. It's just coaches that have different styles. And, and his was definitely not not the caring, compassionate, loving, you know, father figure coach necessarily. His was a different level of professionalism that I don't think college football has seen. Our job was playing football. You show up ready. We didn't stretch before games. It was like, you, you, you come ready to play. That's not my job. Yeah. We didn't have pregame speeches. Okay. I mean, it was like the stuff that you, <laughs> everything you think about in Texas football, <laughs> like that like, regimen, that ritual, that like, we didn't do that stuff. Yeah. It was like, you come ready to play. And it was, and, I, and obviously the offense itself was like way off the track. I mean, just amazing the way that he works. But when, when we would go to practice, there were a few fundamental things. There was kind of four sayings, two of which that, that have always stuck with me. One was get better every day. That was kind of just his phrase, you know, just like you're chopping wood. Like, don't come out here and waste time. 
And the other one was don't confuse activity with improvement. You know, famous saying that's been around for a long time. But those were two that 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 I think when you're in the grind of anything, football especially, you're showing up every day, you're doing the same drills, the same routine, the same amount of time. You can't. You just kind of can kind of get in the in the routine. His 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 sermon of of many was always don't confuse activity with improvement. But I mean, I've got Mike Leach story after Mike Leach story, but a couple that I that that <laughs> that I remember well. He didn't embrace the pirate thing like that. He was he was not a great speech giver early on. In fact, most of the time, I think Texas Tech was doing anything they could to try and hide him from the podium. And what he would do is he would he would what's what's the, what's the what's the right way to what's the right way to think about this to say this for the camera. He would do stuff where he would loosen up. He would he would there would be certain things that would help him loosen up maybe that were, were a liquid substance <laughs> before he would give speeches. And of course we're around him every day. So we know we, we would know what was going on. And so he would, there was one of his early speeches at one of the early bowl games. He definitely had a hand, he had a little more help than he probably needed. <laughs> <laughs> and so the speech was much longer. <laughs> it was the early days of what became the pirate rants. And so we're all sitting there like going, I mean, just as a, as a team, like kind of looking around, going, "I can't believe this is going on." But, but yeah, he could go on. I mean, every. I mean, the, look, the fat little girlfriend's comment that 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 was like an early one. That that was. Yeah. Uh, I, we must have gotten that speech a hundred times. Uh, that's, that's funny. There were a lot of those types of things that that he his motivation, you know, style was different. But you know, you think about this a lot in leadership. The number of coaches that have come out of that system, right? I mean, you think about. Art Browles, obviously, you think about Dana Holgerson, you think about Sonny Dykes, you think about Dave Aranda. I mean, you, you go down, I mean, literally go down the list. There are there are 20 coaches that have come out of that system that coach directly under Leach. And so for all the ways he might be critiqued, you look at that and you go, it's a different style of leadership, but but that produced an, an amazing cast of coaches that are influencing the game today. Well, it's similar to, I know you worked at Trammell Crow, but you look at the amount of leaders now that flow out from these these greats. You mentioned Lou Wolf. I had a, a gentleman on here the other day that works for John Goff here who yeah. worked under Rainwater. And that story of like, hey, I got to sit next to the guy mm -hmm. and this apprenticeship model. I don't know if we've gotten away from that in today's modern society. And maybe that happened in the 80s because there was no internet. You actually literally had to be close. Mm -hmm. But like, what did being close to Lou mean to you? And then do you think there's a place for that in the world today where people bring in young guys and just literally physically sit them close to them as a way to help grow them? And I love that. I mean, with, when, so Lou would do that. And that's what I loved about being with Lou. And it was also one of those things where it's totally safe. All your all the things you're trying to project to the world about how good you are and how great you've got, how you got it figured out. None of that existed in, the, in those four walls with him. Yeah. We go to lunch at this little Italian restaurant, you know, that you walk through this weird alley to get to <laughs> right around his little two story office in the middle of West LA that completely nondescript barbed wire fence. Very strange. <laughs> but we go to this little Italian restaurant. We'd order the same thing every time. And I just kind of start going, okay, I'm thinking about this. What about this idea? What about that idea? I mean, these are things that were most often it was like, that is a terrible idea. Like that's the dumbest, <laughs> maybe the dumbest thing you've said in all of our lunches. 
But he would, I mean, and that was okay. It was okay to just be there and kind of explore those things with him and go, now, I like that idea. Have you thought about this? Or what about, I mean, of course, this is when co-working is blowing up. So we'd talk about that. All these different ideas that he would kind of look at. And then he'd say, and as we'd kind of get through certain deals that Woodbine would be working on, he's like, now that one's interesting. And he'd kind of start to unpack it. And more than anything, what I loved about Lou is the ability to unpack structure was always fascinating to me. And that's where I think a, I always kind of talk about the assets you need to be in our business. And and one of the, I think, the most underrated, almost never talked about is just creativity. The ability to be able to think of a deal differently and go, well, how can I structure that where the seller wins, where we win, where this capital structure might make sense? Where you, Again, where, that's the, the creative side of, of our business, I think, often gets lost in just like, you know, the the typical way of doing things. But that's probably what I learned most from him was just thinking about deals, learning how to think about deals differently and finding solutions that that my competitor may may not necessarily come up with. I would characterize even in the short 10 minutes we've already been talking, you've you've been the beneficiary of a lot of great men in your life. Yeah. We just celebrated Father's Day. You just bought your business from your father. We just got done talking about your father. Let's just talk about, and you just celebrated 50 years at Woodbine, so let's maybe do an ode to your father. How did the business begin? How has he influenced you through that? What's it like buying a business from a dad? Let's just talk about dads. Well, I'll answer the one that I think is most pertinent right now, and then I'll flip the question Mm. on you. But the, the, the thing that I've had to unpack lately is what what's the what are the ways that he has impacted me? And I think there's a book I'm reading by a guy named John Tyson called The Intentional Father, which is required reading for anyone with a with a 10, 11, 12 year old okay. entering into the kind of teen years. Girl or boy, but I think that girl or boy, I would say I think it's it's relevant. But one of the questions that I've had to to think about as I I have a twelve year old, is I think about how to kind of usher him into this season of life where it's like now you're going from a boy into a man and and by the way just to add a disclaimer not necessarily like the the typical masculinity thing or toxic masculinity even just just saying hey how do you be a how do you be a man today that's kind of what i'm walking through with him but to do that you got to do a lot of reflection you got to say well what did my dad do well what did my dad not do well and so I've thought about that and I just kind of said, okay, what are the, what are the two or the three things, the most important lessons that I've learned from my dad? And I've kind of, I've kind of put that in pretty simply kind of three words, which would make a lot of sense if you know my dad. Number one would be humility. Number two would be generosity. Number three would be hustle. And if you think about those three things, none of them require words, which is what my dad was not great at. <laughs> he was present. He was there for every single game, never missed a game. He was there for all the big things. But but if what you were looking for is, I love you, I'm proud of you, those types of things, th- that was not readily on his tongue. I don't hold that against him. I think everybody has to go through some moment in time where they forgive their mom or dad <laughs> for being kids, raising kids. Yeah. And that's kind of what I think, you know, for, for my dad, it just wasn't necessarily something he grew up knowing. And so when I think about those three things, humility, generosity, and hustle, those, each of those have kind of key stories to them and moments that have kind of shaped how, how I live. But 
But those were the most important lessons that I think have influenced everything that we do at, at Woodbine. Because naturally, as the founder of Woodbine, you're, that company takes on the personality of the founder. And that, that's what we've tried to do, I think, in those three areas. So I'm going to flip it on you. So what are the, what are the two or three? And I'm not, it sounds like our dads were, were very similar. I wrote, a, a, I was telling you, I wrote something on Medium a few years ago on Father's Day. Humility, generosity, hustle, you mentioned those. I think the things that had come to mind that day. So my dad passed away actually 11 years ago today. Yeah, At his funeral, there's, that's a long day. It's very blurry. I may or may not have taken something to calm the emotions. Mike Leach? Yeah. Version. And the one thing that stood out to me that day, which characterized my dad, I think, perfectly, was... I was you you stand at the end of the at the end of the ceremony everybody's walking by giving you their well wishes and a an old gentleman who came up to me never seen him he, I said he said you know my condolences and I said thanks and I said can I tell you a quick story I said yeah I would love to and he just said uh, I'm the I'm the janitor at the hospital that your dad's a doctor at and I said great to meet you and he just said, nobody has ever paid attention to me the way your mm-hmm. dad did. And God, yeah. I think the, the lesson learned there, especially in today's world, which is a very me-centered world, he, we said we we're going to do this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You start talking about dads, it's going to happen. <laughs> It just, he, he just made sure that everybody felt comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, everybody, the, the, the janitor is, is equal to the CEO. Mm-hmm. We're all God's children. Mm-hmm. Humans tend to categorize, mm-hmm. but so, all right, I'm going to get through this. So that was one. And then humility. I mean, he just, I think that speaks off the backs of that. You know, he was a lawyer, partner at a law firm, decided at 37, he wanted to go to medical school, become a doctor and serve. You wouldn't do that if, if you wanted to take the popular road. That's right. You wouldn't do that if you wanted to make more money. You wouldn't do that if you wanted to hang out in the, the top crowds. You would just stay a lawyer and just do that for the rest of your life. <laughs> You're not... You're not moving to Lubbock, Texas. You are not moving your family to Lubbock, Texas and making no money for eight years if you want to do the popular thing. Mm-hmm. It's, it is actually the probably the worst decision you could do to be popular. Mm-hmm. And he would tell you he never thought once about it. He wanted to serve. He wanted to. He was very keen that you only live one life and you might as well make the best of it. Mm-hmm. And so those are probably two things I could say that we might all be able to relate to. I actually put a tweet out like two years ago and I was, had just got done talking to my, talking about my dad at breakfast. And so I just went on there and wrote, you know, my dad was like a partner at a law firm and, and he, one day he decided to quit and become a doctor and he was following his dreams. It was something to that degree. It ended up getting liked over 280,000 times. It went around the world like multiple times. We were getting this 
But it struck this chord, I think, in society, which is like, we do only live once. Mm -hmm. And there are so many people, whether it's your career or just something that you're doing kind of in this vein of, I have multiple lives. So if this one doesn't work, I'll just do it again. And I think about that a lot. It, it, what you just said, never miss a game. You're not going to get your kid's game back mm -mm. again. Mm -mm. Don't miss, you know, a kid's dance. Like there's just so many things. Yeah. Like once you miss it, it's over. Yeah. So anyway, those are probably two of the things. I think on the on the the other side, I, it's so funny you asked that. I've never really gone through the exercise of like what are some of the things my dad did. Mm -hmm. I think the thing that he would say he regretted in the story I just told, although it was for the, a noble cause. From when I was seven to 15, when you're going through medical school and residency, like mm -hmm. one, you're not calling your right own there. schedule. Mm -hmm. You're on call three or four nights a week. Being a med student or a resident, if you're listening to this, like God bless you. Oh, it is a worst. brutal life. Watch my brother go through it. It is the worst. So he was not very present for a certain mm -hmm. He missed things that I wish he had been at. Now, I don't know if I can hold him against that. I don't think he wanted to, but that's something that I remember vividly. And it, there was a period when I was a kid, I talked about it in a letter I wrote where he wasn't interested in being my best friend. He was interested in being a father. Mm -hmm. And there were times where I really didn't like him because he, again, he wasn't interested in being popular. He was interested in the right thing. And when you're a 15 year old idiot that wants to, you know, sneak beer out of your kid's house and everything, watch mm -hmm. rated R movies and, hook up with girls and you have a dad that's not supporting any of that there can be years of your life where you're like why do i want to hang out with this guy yeah. and then you kind of come out the other side and you're like as as every day goes by now i literally get on my knees i thank god i'm like thank you god because i now i'm connecting all those dots and going i hope i can do this for my kids because it is easy to just want to be cool dad yeah i think that's that's pretty sweet I mean, first of all, your dad sounds like an incredible guy, but that the the virtue of humility, I think, is the one that's, I mean, I, I feel like lost in today's world of self-promotion, of hype, of putting forward this image of, of you know, you know, because, it, because of social media and all the like, it's like, this is all the things we're doing well. And, and, you know, and this is, this is how good I am. This is how those types of things. And I think what I've always loved about my grandfather, what I love about my dad, what I feel like I see this in my, in my brother too, who I work with is that never, they never think they're a big deal. They never think they're <laughs> that important. They never feel like they deserve to be somewhere. They always, I always see a humility in them that I, that, that I've always admired. I've always said, you know, that's a, that's a special thing to be able to for other people to see, I think for other people to go, oh, it's okay not to not to put forward the image that hey, you're perfect or you've got all these things figured out. Especially in kind of the 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 I feel like the business, the successful business culture, we've got to project this thing that we you know, we're undefeated, we're <laughs> always and forever. It's not always like that. There there are failure failures and challenges and things like that 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 you've got to weather and you got to be able to say, okay, well, well, you know, what's the opportunity to learn from that? Yeah, I know we're both, you know, believers in Jesus. And I think that's basically what you just said is the thing that is of many things most attractive, born in a manger. He was everything that was not what you would think would be a king in that time, yet changed the whole world. Yeah. 
I, I mean, on that note, I talked to, I try to, if there's a theme that I try to talk to my kids about as much as possible is saying, look, like you, you've got to be comfortable. You got to be comfortable not fitting in. You got to be comfortable knowing that you're going to be on the outside looking in a lot of situations, particularly if you believe with conviction, the things that we believe where the world is taking and trying to convince you of any number of different items that are contrary to what we, what we know and believe to be true in scripture. The, the the more that I can convince them that, hey, that's actually the place you want to be. Yep. Place you want to be where you're going, hey, I don't feel like I fit in here. And you don't then have you don't have to be sad about that. You can you can actually look at that and go, hey, I'll stand right here. Yep. Stand right here. Even if it's even if I'm a little bit lonely, even if I'm a little bit unsure, I'm a little bit insecure about it, I'm gonna stand right here. Cause I know this is right. I know this is true. And so that that's the thing where, you know, as a dad, that's a, that's a hard one to you know to really communicate. Most of that's through where I can say to them, "Here's how I've done it wrong. <laughs> Here, here's where I haven't done that." Yep. And you know, you're, of course, you're trying to course correct it, and hope they don't go into those same things. But yeah, I agree with you. That's where that is kind of a central virtue that you look at and you go, "Man, talk about a guy that stood alone. Yep. And wasn't afraid to be a truth teller. That that's that's the kind of man I want." My my kids will benefit greatly because I will have many stories for them on what not to do. <laughs> yeah, that's true, and uh, yeah, for that's for sure. I, I think the other thing on dads, and I don't know if your dad was this way. When my dad died, I was twenty five, and look, we didn't have you know there wasn't a ton of secrets in the family or assets that I needed to know about. It just we it was pretty simple, but. Regardless, he was super transparent with me and one of the strengths, even since I was a kid. Now, it, it was all age appropriate, like when I needed to know stuff. But when he passed, I didn't have to like learn about all this. I was pretty under, I pretty much understood where all the major things and major priorities in his life were, mm -hmm. whether it was assets, whether it was my mom, whether it was the breakfast that he had every Friday morning with our pastor and where they stood in that conversation of four years. I just, I kind of knew where all the important things were. You know, you go through your dad's laptop and phone to make sure there's nothing going on um, mm -hmm. in business or just stuff that could come up that could, I mean, I think people think today when they pass, it used to be you pass and maybe people could go through your diary. Now you leave a digital footprint. Mm -hmm. One of the things I'm like most proud to say, which might not seem like a big deal, I had to go through everything. And I remember going through it thinking this could change how I think about yeah. my dad. I did not find one thing that I could ever hang my hat on is like, <laughs> this was a different guy than I knew as a son. That's a man of integrity. That's cool. And so I think about that a lot, like just the simple rule of if I died tomorrow and, and my wife and kids had to go through my phone, would they still look at me the same way that they think they see me? That's so good. We talked, I mean, there's a one time I wrote basically 35 things, character traits that I would say, if I could, if I could pass anything on. Yep. I would give a, a almost a biblical definition to to these 35 words. And originally I was writing that thinking about my son and then I was thinking okay what are the 35 words I would translate to my daughter as well? And I was kind of came to this realization well, the same like 100% <laughs> the same. So I started kind of going through these things but you know if you if you think about what I mean you can take any word integrity 
integrity, I always tell my kids, it's like, it's doing the right thing, even when no one is looking, you know? And so there's 35 of those types of definitions that then I'll try to periodically take them through to go, okay, here's what humility is. Here's what character is. Here's what humor is. Like, here's what care is. Here's what compassion is. These are the types of things that I, I want them to be able to hear. And hopefully that at the same time, I'm kind of preaching to myself, going, <laughs> I'm not living by those <laughs> things, but but that footprint, as you mentioned, doing the right thing when no one's looking to, to, to then unpack what your dad had and be able to look at that and go, man, I talk about doing the right thing when no one's looking. Yeah. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. The, the digital, there's a digital footprint out there. So anyway, it, it was really interesting. And I think just tying that up and I don't know if your dad was this way with you, obviously you kind of grew up knowing him in Woodbine and knowing him, but did he kind of include you in on things even at a younger age or were you kept at bay for a while? You know, the way it, it, it was always by proximity, right? It was always by being in the room in certain places. I mean, and some of that stuff, I don't feel like I knew. In fact, my dad was, I felt like he was pretty careful to try and protect us from thinking that we owned anything. Yep. I remember going to, to Hyatt Regency Dallas and which was this, you know, which is an icon in Dallas. And he and the Hunt family developed that together and really put Woodbine on the map in many ways. And I remember one time asking him, I can vividly remember the conversation where I'd be like, so, so tell me like how we own that. Right. He's like, no, we don't own that. And I remember like, like we don't own any of it. He's like, <laughs> no, we don't own any of it. I was like, well, what about like, even like a small, like part of carpet square? He was like, no, we don't own any of it. And now, meanwhile, we're pulling up to valet. He's tossing the keys to the to his buddy, and you know we're parking in the front. And so I'm like, I'm going, what? <laughs> and I put these two together. And I think part of that was, of course, he he was honest in that statement because if you think about how it was structured, we didn't know anything. Right? If you get down to legal entity, it's like we don't know anything. <laughs> he wasn't telling a lie. He wasn't telling a lie. But but that was almost to protect me, which is the same reason why. You know, instead of getting a new car, I got a 86 Suburban <laughs> when I when I started driving that had a chalkboard paint job. But th those are the types of things that, that I appreciated about him and, and shielding me from some of that entitlement yep. that he was afraid I might I might assume. And so the, the, the real work became when I was in grad school and the, we were kind of thinking about how I might join the business. My brother had joined the business about a year before. Then it really became, okay, what is, what are the parts and pieces of this organization? And what was unique about that is coming out of grad school, you think you're the smartest kid in the world. Anyway, I get in there and I do have an organizational mindset. Anyway, I enjoy that stuff to be able to come in and go, gosh, we need to do this differently. We need to do that differently. We got to change this. And it wasn't like coming and dropping bombs, but it was a very methodical, you know, kind of dismembering and, and reassembling. That my dad, he had a great comment. He was just like, as I would approach these, I think sometimes probably gingerly and sometimes <laughs> probably not so well. And his comment to me was interesting. He was like, well, just because it's the way we've always done it doesn't mean it's the way we have to do it going forward. To have that freedom, to have that license, to be able to then come in and make some of those changes and not do it in a way that was just totally bombastic was, was, was I think, a wonderful license to be able to kind of start to shepherd that business in the way that we wanted it to go. And so that that was probably a more gradual entry, having the history, understanding the people, knowing as much about the culture of the organization 
that was really important for me to be able to then come into the business and 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 kind of start to shift it the way we wanted it to go. Is buying a business from your father with your brother a easy <laughs> thing or a difficult thing? I think you're the first guest in 300 that is partnered with their brother to buy from their dad. Any anyone in the family business world would say the same thing. Like there there it is like riddled with potholes. I mean, you know the the there's a million statistics and it goes back to like this ancient Chinese proverb. It's like from, you know, lily pad to lily pad or something. I don't, yeah. Something like that. The, 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 and the, the lesson for all these, which goes back literally hundreds of years is most oftentimes, the, you know, the, the ability to go from G1 to G2, generation one to generation two, exceptionally rare to go from G2 to G3, even more so. And so, but once you make that first hurdle, the odds of being able to go to that next generation are much more likely. Now, I don't think I have grand ambitions to say I want my kids to take this business over. I felt a very clear calling to say this this is what I feel like I'm partly called to do in my life is to to carry on the legacy that my dad has and be able to say I, I want to see Woodbine go another 50 years. And so a lot of our mentality and our vision for Woodbine, which as you mentioned, our 50th anniversary this year, is to say how do we how do we allow this company to to endure for another fifty years? And we're thinking about it in a fifty year time frame versus a two or three or four or five year deal horizon. It changes the way you think about a lot of things. It changes the decisions on how you hire. It changes how you talk about culture. It changes the way you even the credit that you might want to take. So there's a lot of things about that that I think has really pushed us to think longer term because of that. I think you just kind of said it. Thinking long term provides an opportunity to let humility flourish throughout the organization. You know, I, it's funny you say. That. I think that I think it's a hundred percent true. What I often talk about, and and you know, I have to be careful with the terminology here because I don't want to be misinterpreted. But but what I've seen in in really understanding the history of Woodbine. I, I can look at points in time and say, I can see where God's hand has been on this company, or at least the people leading it. I, I, and I wouldn't be bold enough to say, like, there's some special favor that Woodbine has. But I think when you have men and women leading the company who are saying, this is more, like, this is not about me, I think, I think there's a different point of view. And I've now seen that in my brother and I in our tenure in leading the company over the last 10 years, time and again, most recently, even a, a, a partner we brought on yesterday, I, I can look at that and say, look, there's no other way. Like that was not because of our brute force, our effort, our pushing this rock up a hill. That was the, that was the favor of the Lord taking a relationship that I had for several years and saying, let's foster that in a way where then it puts it in a point in time where they can say that happens to be the right fit for us right now. And those are the types of things where you would normally say, hey, we, we did that. I did that. Instead, it's going, I had nothing to do with that. Yep. That was a, that was a relationship that I didn't deserve, that I didn't earn, that I didn't, I didn't knock down that door and get that. That was something that was, again, by the grace of God, that over many years through trust kind of finally came to fruition in a, in a major and material way. Yep. And those are the types of things where I think, as you said, if you had a longer term view, you can look at that and go, oh, there's not much I can take responsibility for. Yep. Or like a huge deal that, that closes. 
if you're thinking of the context of 50 years, that deal's a blip. Yeah. If you're thinking of the context of, well, we got to get out of this in three years, it's everything. Yeah. There's a guy in YPO, Mike Boyd, and I was actually on his podcast, and he runs a podcast called The 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 Business of Family. Mm-hmm. And he interview all he interviews are like these families that have kept businesses going for four or five generations. And then he finds out. And it, the truth is, nothing happens by it. You don't get the business to the fifth generation by accident. It's very intentional. Oh gosh, yeah. The families are run like a business in some regards. Yeah. And so... Well, speaking of like interesting relationships, I think to to kind of start talking maybe more about what y'all do from a business perspective, I think it would be important to set the foundation, something I've always been curious about, and I think you explained it well on Jake's podcast, but this relationship with the Hunt family. Mm-hmm. It, for a long, if when I first heard of Woodbine, I thought, oh, that's the Hunt's hotel arm or something. Yep. Explain how it all works, because yeah, it's such sure. a unique and special partnership. Yeah, it really is. I mean, I think that's rare that you have a partnership that lasts 50 years. And we often point to that when we're recruiting capital partners to come invest alongside us, because at the end of the day, we're looking for families like the Hunt family who who really see it in a long-term manner and who can invest in the long-term and really trust and believe in us. And I think that's the word I would always point to when I think about the Hunt family is, is that, that that was built on a foundation of trust, like bar none, full stop, that's it. The way that relationship started, and, and some of this is legend, but the short versions when they were building Hyatt Dallas and Reunion Tower, there's a bunch of construction agreements and contracts and lender agreements. And Mr. Hunt, you know, my dad are meeting and my dad says, hey, I need you to, I need you to read these docs. And Mr. Hunt says, that's what I hired you for. And, and I'm telling you that that strand of trust has has endured the entire time. In fact, there was a time I was meeting with. Chris Kleiner, his son-in-law, who who is the co-CEO along with Hunter Hunt of the, they kind of run both parts of the business, real estate investments and oil and gas and kind of all other energy things as well together. And Chris, when I was meeting with Chris one time, I was like, hey, you know, this is, I was kind of explaining a little bit about what we were doing, you know, and, and kind of going back to what I felt like our mission was, which was deeply ingrained by my dad, was, hey, our mission is to build wealth for future generations of the Hunt family, not wealth for wealth's sake, but as a steward. And and Chris kind of stopped me. He's like, hey, you don't have to worry about us. Like, you need to start thinking about the Scoville family. And it was kind of those moments I was like, oh, I, I guess I do. I guess, <laughs> I guess that's probably something that becomes important. But I love that wisdom, that, that perspective that he had. And by the way, there, there's a hundred other conversations like that with Chris Klein or, or with Mr. Hunt that have been, you know, I think really important in our growth and development. But but it all comes down to one thing, and it is trust. Because they say, well, they're not going to make a decision in their own self-interest. They are going to think about their investors first. They are going to put our priorities first. And whenever there are hard times I think they've seen us enough in the trenches to go, man, those guys like fight and claw <laughs> to the last inch to be able to to figure out how to resolve those those problems and make sure that that we, the investor, are protected. And so I think that's that is a key tenet of ours and why we've kind of said, look, we just we need to focus on those types of family offices who have that type of mindset and who value that type of character, because there there are many that 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 don't and they just have a different investment philosophy again not necessarily right or wrong just a different way of looking things and if there's an there's not alignment there 
And most oftentimes, then when, when you do get into the deal and things do start to get hard or it is time to sell or or if the right decision is actually to, to keep it, if there's not alignment there, then there's going to be misalignment on the decision at that point. And that's the kind of thing that we've really tried to say. We, we need to focus on finding what we always say, like-hearted and like-minded investors who say, that's the kind of group that I would invest with. And and to take that a step further, because if the, I think the joke is if you've met one family office, you've met one family office. Sure, but, yeah. but y'all have seen institutional partners. You guys have seen over 50 years of the gambit. And maybe it's not just a, a about the hunt family, but there's families like them, like from a investment lens, what matters to them? Because mm-hmm. they're not thinking in five-year terms. They're probably, again, thinking in 50-year horizons, building wealth for generations. How does that change like how they think about deals or investments? Or Obviously, they want returns. Sure. But once we get past that, what other things matter at that level of thinking? Yeah, I mean, look, I think at the end of the day, I have found it's rarely about the project. I mean, I think what we've seen is the same way that Mr. Hunt chose my dad, as as he would say, he was jockey betting, right? He's not betting on the horse, he's betting on the jockey. And I think most oftentimes, as the relationship I was alluding to earlier, so a little more context, we have an asset in San Antonio called Hyatt Hill Country. It's a 500 room resort, sits on 300 acres, really special place that we developed 30 years ago. And now we're kind of, my brother and I get to literally take it into its next chapter, which is really just a neat, fun, awesome opportunity to, again, like further the legacy that I feel like Woodbine and my my dad, which are so linked together, have done. And in that, we have, we that was the partner I was mentioning earlier that we brought into that deal that was a very sizable investor, ends up being about 50% of the capital there. When, when that was coming together, as much of that as I mentioned to you was 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 really about this this kind of currency of trust that we were dealing in. And I don't know. I mean, look, I think the deal was important to them. I think it, it hit a lot of the right buckets. But at the end of the day, I think they were saying that's a group. Woodbine is the type of group that we can that we can trust. They value relationships. They, they've kind of got this blue collar mentality. They're they're rigorous and accountable in the way that they manage their projects you know they've they've got a set of values that they are like uncompromising on and they're humble i mean and, and i mean I, I think that's what they would say at the end of the day those were the first five boxes deal was number six yeah most of the families i think we're talking to i think they're looking at that vetting first and then they're saying oh they happen to be in hospitality okay let's see if that makes sense for us yeah, it's funny you say, I mean, when you talk about folks that have been in business with people a long time or done lots of deals with people and you ask them how that is going, very rarely is their first answer, oh, they make 25% returns on command. <laughs> it's always about the people. Right. And then it's like, and, the, and we do good deals and, and that kind of carries it on. Is the Hyatt Hill Country have the, the winding lazy river? Yeah, that's right. So when my dad's dad passed away in like 2000 and oh, I'll, I'll, it's like year 2000, I think. And they're all from the Northeast. I I didn't think I was going to tell this story today. My dad had six brothers and sisters. They all, I have lots of cousins. About a few months after my grandfather passed away, my grandmother said, I want to do a trip for the entire family. And from New Hampshire, where she lived, she picked the Hyatt Hill country in San Antonio. <laughs> and good. our entire family, this was year 2000, spent time. And I just remember, all I remember is the lazy river. 
But that is where we spent kind of the celebration of no, my grandfather's so life was the Hyatt Hill country. That's so good. I mean, the interesting story about that Lazy River, actually. So the I think it was a guy named jo- Doug Gioga, who was the CEO of Hyatt at the time. Okay. There had never been a Lazy River developed in the U.S. This had been done in Mexico, <laughs> probably at like Six Flags, but never at a hotel. And so he says, John, you need to come down and see this. So they go to Mexico and they see it. My dad comes back and says, we're doing one. Now, similar story. There's a there's kind of a massive kind of pool feature that we're we're actually building at Hyatt Country Hill Country now as a part of this recap, and just in a unique kind of ironic twist, there's never been one done at a hotel in the U.S. <laughs> and my brother and I are going, that's it, <laughs> and it's basically this kind of two or three acre lake that's a that you can that you can do everything in, but really? it's a, but it's actually a pool, so it'll it'll be really fun to see how that kind of transforms the resort once again. But but it is it is a neat part of that. And in that project, that's all family offices. I mean, we we went down the institutional route. We knew that if we went down that route, we were going to have to give up control because of the performance of the resort over the period of COVID, which blew all of our you know expectations. We end up saying, hey, we're going to say no to the the institutional guys on this one. We're going to walk away from that, which for my brother and I was a really tough decision because it meant that our family would have to go literally all chips to the middle in order to kind of maintain the development timeline we were on. So we kind of say no to two or three groups that were ready to write one $90 million check. And we said, we're going to go raise it from family offices. And so when I mentioned that big investor coming in, you know, uh, not too long ago, plus the series of other family offices that we haven't invested in it, that does become a really kind of redemptive moment where it's like, Hey, we made the right call there. And now We've got, what's interesting about that is we've been able to kind of expand the scope of that. We'll end up bringing in probably five or 10 other family offices to it. So it's, it's, it's really fun for us to now be able to say, we can pick our partners. We, we, and and if there's one thing that I've seen and learned from my dad is, man, if you can pick your partners, if you have the luxury and liberty to do that, you're, you're in rarefied air because most oftentimes you don't have that liberty. You're kind of going, I'm just taking what I can get. And and that's that's where you can get into some real muddy water. A dollar is a dollar until it's attached to somebody, and then it comes with their personality. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we were talking before this. I mean, Fort's embarking on a large something different of how we might raise money. Yeah, and it's easy to get glitz and glamoured by the big dollars from maybe somebody that you wouldn't align with personally. And I think we'll end up choosing to do a lesser amount but pick our partners and do them yeah. thoughtfully through families. Maybe my one question on that, just through your experience, from my experience, but what I hear, and we haven't raised a ton from family offices, they kind of hunt in packs. Once you get one or two families in, they all talk to each other during the year, but they start kind of coming in once they've heard that X family's in. Does that kind of the experience you saw or was it different? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I tell you, I'll tell you a funny story. So we bought the Driscoll in Austin. Which which we have to shout out. Oh, yeah. Phil Lauterbach, if you're listening to this, we love you, buddy. There's nobody better than <laughs> Philip Lauterbach. P&L. His, mm. his initials are P&L. I mean, <laughs> he's the perfect guy to underwrite and understand something like that. There is nobody better than Phil Lauterbach. El Paso, right? Like, yeah. I haven't found many people I don't like from El Paso. But We're a good group. Yeah, it is a good we group. We do our best. And, and then you had your formative years in Lubbock. So you got this, like, whole thing going. Like, I'm Texas, baby. Valley to the... <laughs> The Rio Plains, Grande. Like got the whole thing going. Oh, yeah. Well, f- yeah, we were actually working with Philip on this. And so we had, we had kind of parachuted into Austin. 
it's kind of a dream for me to always buy that hotel. I felt like that needed to be owned by Texans. I feel like that needed to be like really shepherded in, in, in the right way. Not, not to, I'm not trying to be overly like righteous or biased, but, but that felt like the right way to steward that asset. And so we parachute in and we start meeting with a bunch of family offices in Austin and, and we get some early commitments that were big, kind of five, 10, you know, kind of pretty decent sized checks that were coming in and kind of believe that vision. And, and meanwhile, I had been having this conversation with Eddie Margain, who Eddie's a remarkable partner, born and raised in Mexico, moved to Austin. And I've kind of said, there's nobody in 10 years that has had more of an impact on the city of Austin than him. And he's not from there at all, right? I mean, but the things that he's done, including FC Austin, or is it Austin FC? <laughs> They're pretty amazing. But as we're going through this, this capital raise process, then Eddie and I are talking. He's like, okay, I'm in. So now I start mentioning the people that Eddie's in and they're like, or I, maybe I was, actually was in them. I was saying, Eddie, actually, I think Eddie's going to come in with us. We're kind of working through that right now. Then the conversation changed. It was like, okay, great. If Eddie's in, I'm in. Yeah. So like everything hinged on Eddie then coming in. <laughs> so I was like, I think I may have just made a mistake here by, by mentioning that, but, but he did come in and I'm like that lockstep. There were so many people that came right behind him that, but that's because he had an incredible reputation. He was trustworthy. It was all those things that people were saying, if Eddie's in it, like I'm in it. And so it was kind of a windfall after that, that we were able to do it. And by the way, Philip Lauterbach was the man on organizing all of that, kind of creating that infrastructure, the investing, you know, the investor communication that we then went on to do through PixU. So that's, that's an appropriate shout out because he was a big part of that. It's, it's, we come up with these, obviously y'all's track record and everything you've done is why Eddie did it. But when it comes to all the other families, you can make the fanciest deck, do all the same tours, put all the energy. And as long as Eddie's in some of that, right. it's just like, yeah, that's right. So y'all do hotels, mm-hmm. all kinds, all kinds of hotels, Full but, service but it laundry. does say on your website that maybe one core competency is competency is large scale development resorts. It is. So I would say this, so I'm mean, not to be too cliche. I yeah. think our core competency though, I mean, at, at least internally, because when, when, when I, when I saw that, I was like, oh, I wonder if that's actually the language that we should use. Cause it's identical to the website. Yes. The language we use about our core competency is actually teamwork, track record, and trust. Okay. Those are the three things. The that three T's. Feeling. Yeah. Those are, that's our core competency. Okay. The, now, historically, resorts have been where we have made our name. Okay. So Hyatt Hill Country, Lost Pines, Weston Carolyn, you know, La Quintero, those are the, those are resorts that, that we have been involved with. And that's where we've, where I think we've made a name for ourselves. I think as my brother and I have gotten involved in the business and it, as we've tried to shift the direction, it has been a little more balanced approach where we're doing urban full service. We're doing select service. We're doing now we're doing kind of what we call long stay or extended stay properties, which is a brand launch that Hyatt Hilton and Marriott are kind of doing at the same time. So we've tried to take what was our core competency, I guess, you know, maybe I should say our, our where our reputation was built. We've tried to leverage that to be able to say, let's diversify in these other categories of hospitality and grow our business that way. Most oftentimes in the hotel business, you're a, you're a resort guy, you're a full service guy, you're a select service guy. We've tried to kind of break that down a little bit and be more of a, a hospitality expert across all spectrums so that when somebody is looking at Woodbine, an investor, they're saying, hey, that group is the category expert. In addition to what I think of them as a as a family office, that group is who 
if we're doing hospitality, there's one group we need to talk to. Then I think you have this compounding effect where Fort's doing, a, they buy 50 acres where part of it's going to be industrial and part of it's going to be mixed use. They're going, well, if there's a hotel component. There's one group we need to call in Texas. Yep. That's who we should talk to. That's where I want that to propagate, like, you know, to, to begin to build on itself. Those are the things that I think, I hope most folks would say, as we develop that bandwidth, people are going, that's the group we should talk to when it comes to hotel stuff. Which one of those different types is, I wouldn't say better, like which <laughs> one's fastest growing in America? Are yes. they all growing quickly? Is there one that you'll see more of or less of? How should your average guy like me think about the hotel industry from all the different types of product? You know, it's a, the 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 brands are masters of creating swim lanes. Okay. I mean, I mean, at the end of the day, they're, they are a brand company, right? They're not a real estate company at all. When you, when you think about Hyatt Hilton, Marriott, and others. And explain how that works real quick. Well, generally, if you are, most often folks are going to see Marriott on the top of the building and they're going to say, well, Marriott must own that asset. That's almost never the case. A group like Woodbine owns that asset. We hire a Marriott to brand it, and sometimes we hire them to manage it as well. Okay. Or Hilton or a Marriott. And so each of those segments kind of has their day in the sun. Resorts for a while were really important, and there were very few people that could do it in and around the Southwest. And so you saw a handful of those being developed. But those are hard. Those are 10-year projects. Those are several hundred million dollars. Those are thousands of acres. Those are you know massive, complex deals. So th- those are there's there's very few people that really play in that space, which is part of why we like it because you know you're kind of the tallest short guy sometimes. Right. So in in the case of of select service. That's a swim lane that was really untapped. And so you saw Courtyard, you saw Hilton Garden Inn, you saw Hyatt Place, you saw Home 2, you see AC, you see all these other brands that are launching because at the end of the day, there was a competitive advantage to building a certain type of hotel property that people would stay at. Right now, what what is probably the wide open kind of frontier, and and if you think about like Amera Suites or you know, Extended Stay America or some of these types of hotels, which I'm sure you and probably most of your listeners have not spent a lot of time in, there are no branded options in that category. But now you have Hyatt Hilton Marriott saying, we're going to launch at the same time. And so it's it's almost, I mean, it's like a gold rush. It's basically saying, hey, who's going to get there first? And now you're really leaning on the relationships that, that we or our, our peers have with those brands to be able to say, okay, we're going to do 20, we're going to do 30, we're going to do 40. Those are the types of developments where you're building those all around the country, mostly next to hospital systems, major demand drivers like airports, primary and secondary markets anywhere. But it's a it's a major development undertaking, and those are generally inexpensive to develop. You maybe don't. I mean, at the end of the day, they're twenty million, you know, maybe to 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 develop. Whereas you know, a resort as I mentioned, is like two hundred million. Like so, you got to do a lot of those little ones to make it feel like one of those big ones. And so that's kind of what we're getting into is saying, okay, let, let's leverage those relationships, our position with land holdings across the state and the region to be able to say, let's get, let's develop a lot of those for those three flags. So that's kind of the, that's the frontier right now that, that is, that is open. And that is, I think, got a chance to kind of capture a lot of market share. And do you go to like Hyatt and say, we want to build 30 of these for you. Tell us where to build them. Or like, do you at least get the agree the, the, green light from them that we're going to go do the work, but we kind of have your back in that as we find these, we're yeah. your partner. How in does one, that work? In one way or the other, it's different with each of the brands. Some brands say, hey, we can't promise you any kind of territory. Other brands say, 
you got the entirety of Texas and the surrounding states. And then other times, right, we're saying, hey, we've already got 20 sites and we're going to them going, does this work for that? And they're going, great, thumbs up. Nine out of those 15 sites works for this brand. Let's go. So it it it, it is a, there, there's no kind of certain formula for that. At the end of the day, they're not necessarily helping you source sites. Sometimes they are. Most oftentimes we're bird dogging it. We're going out there to find all these different sites and then we're going to them and we're saying, does this site work for your brand? They say, yes, now we're off the races. And the way that works, they they have a site. Do you use their plans to develop the building or do you get to come up with your own or do they have guidelines? If it's select service, like yeah. you, you almost, you almost want to try and buy a site that's two acres square so you can surface park, L-shaped building, 125 keys off the shelf, you're moving. Okay. Still have to have your own CDs and all those other things, but in many parts, you're taking the system yep. and this this kind of this kit of parts, and you're saying, okay, plug it together, we'll make it move there. That's what makes that much more efficient to build. Obviously, a full service urban asset where you got restaurants and spa and bars and suites and all those other types of things. It's a much more complex design, and so there's it's rare that you can just take something off the shelf. Most often, what is off the shelf, if you're partnering with a brand, is what the room looks like. Right. Say, okay, it's this many feet by that many feet, and the bathroom's here, and the bed's there. I've walked into so many of them. They're all the same. They do. Double queen-size bed, TV in the middle, <laughs> little awkward desk in the corner with a TV phone on it. With a little tweak here and there, we're like, <laughs> okay, the bathroom got moved to the inside or the outside, or you know, but it's all the same. Yeah. At the end of the day. I mean, and by the way, I'm pretty sure that was the case, you know when Mary and Joseph were looking for a place. So yeah. it's, it's pretty much the same. It's pretty much the same. But then you would you would build that building. You, the Hyatt would say, this is kind of layout looks good. And then the building's built. You have a contract signed with them and they're managing it for a fee. Sometimes, yeah. Explain just how, okay, you said sometimes. How might, what are the different ways you could work with Hyatt on one of those buildings? Yeah, really, really mainly those two. You're saying, okay, I'm, I'm just going to have you brand it. Uh-huh. In which case, just like McDonald's, McDonald's is probably not the right example, but, but some, whatever the fast food chain equivalent would be, because they own the real estate where, yeah. where you're, they're a real estate company. Yeah, well, exactly. Where, where you're just saying, I'm just paying for the brand. And that's a percentage of the top line that you're paying to them. Now, if you also have them manage it, Wait, real quick. If yeah. you're paying for a percentage of the brand, obviously the name is on the hotel, yeah. but what else are they You're giving you branded pamphlets and all the marketing channels. Okay. Um, online. That's right. All the sales channels. If they're booking group business, you know, they have, they have a centralized sales type thing. All of those, the, the, the commercials that you'll see, the ad, the, the pow, the loyalty of the customer who's a card carrying Hyatt member, Hilton member, Marriott member. Those are the types of things that you're really paying for in the brand. Beyond that, you're saying, okay, who's going to manage the hotel? Could be a third-party manager. You know, ours include Ambridge, include Benchmark, include Practice, include Davidson. They include Marriott Hilton, Marriott Hyatt. Like, I mean, it's a it's a pretty big stable of in, of investors. Ergo, that these are the types of groups that will manage your asset for a third-party fee, just like an office building has a has a manager. Yeah. It's the same type of deal. And now you're paying them a percentage of the top line as well. So each of these groups has almost no risk. Not, not almost. They have no risk. <laughs> the The real estate owner is taking 100% of the risk of that deal. Whether we make any money at the bottom line, they're still getting paid for every single dollar that gets brought in that deal. And so it's a very calculated decision on which brand, why, where, all those types of things. And then if they're going to manage it, you know, you got you to gotta be really thoughtful there as well. Because a brand may not be best equipped to manage a select service hotel in Fort Worth. But 
a, a third party might be more equipped in that scenario. But a third party may not have the infrastructure to run a thousand room hotel that we have. So that there's there's different strengths, obviously, to each of those. So do you all manage the Hyatt Hill? Like, does there anything you guys manage or is it always a third party? We, we don't manage our own assets. My dad has always had a philosophy that said, look, you need to be able to fire your manager. If they're not performing, you need to be able to hold them accountable. And if you are an owner operator, there's an argument that you can make that says, well, there's a conflict there. You're never going to fire yourself. Yep. Although I can, the more and more we get into it, we've looked at it and said, gosh, there, there is a scenario where you, get, where you just wish you could kind of control your own destiny. And if you think about things that you could do differently, I mean, from it's easy for an outsider to look in the business and go, man, that, that's strange. Why is that done that way? Because it's always been that way. Yep. And so some of those types of things I've thought about, gosh, what, what if you just, what if you created a, an operator that had no intention of being profitable? Yeah. Or it's literally just a break-even enterprise so that then you could say, hey, let's do, let's do healthcare. Let's do living wage. Let's have long-term employees. Like, let's, let's totally flip the model on its head. And again, maybe that's like just more of a romantic, like idealistic notion. Probably I just don't know enough. Yeah. But, but if there were one thing that I've thought about, one of many, that's one that I'd go, gosh, it'd be interesting to kind of tweak that model a little bit and go, let's just run it totally differently. One more on what I'm, I'm drawing a blank. What are we calling the two acre 125 key? Those are select service. Those are select service. Select service meaning you got a select group of services you're offering. So a full service hotel, you're going to have valet, you're going to have bell, you're going to have room service, you're going to have all those types of things. Select service is just a nice way of saying you don't get all that stuff. Right. Yeah. <laughs> just you're, but you're not paying. You're not paying for it. That's right. That's right. The booking engine online is like a big deal. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. They're the gatekeepers. Many ways. Who's setting pricing? Because that changes quickly. Yeah. And I don't want, know if the word's monopoly, but anybody you talk to in the hotel industry, it's like this constant friction with like these people own the booking engine, which mm -hmm. is like the thing. Yeah. How do you think about that? So there's two categories. OTAs are things like Priceline and Expedia and yep. Booking.com. Those, those are called OTAs. They, they'll lead to somewhere between maybe 25 to 35% of any hotel's bookings. Okay. So it's a significant amount. Yeah. It's also very expensive for the hotel because now you're paying 2x what you would normally pay to be able to get that booking in the window. The brand itself, Marriott, Hilton, Hyatt, IHG, Choice, whatever else, th they're usually going to generate somewhere between 35 and 45% of your bookings are going to come online through their channels. The rest are going to be direct that your wife says, I know we're going to San Antonio. We want to be there with the kids. We want a lazy river. We're booking direct there, right? That, so the brand doesn't necessarily matter in that scenario. In, in all those cases, generally, you're going to see the strength of a brand. I mean, that's why a developer is going to say, I'm willing to pay as much as I'm paying on the top line because I need that strength of that booking engine. Yep. Not to mention the group side of that, where, where a group business, you know, with two or 300 people says, look, I'm going to go to Chicago this year, LA next year. Dallas the year after that. And so I need somebody where I'm negotiating one contract, but now I can go to these three hotels and rotate. That's where a brand can be very strong. But Hotel Emma in San Antonio, very different scenario, right? That's where you had a visionary in Kit Goldsbury. We were fortunate to be a part of it where he said, I don't care. I don't want a brand. I'm going to do something so special, so magnificent, so incredible that people are just going to want to come here. Lo and behold, that's exactly what he did. <laughs> I mean, he created something so special there that, that you know, we were able to kind of develop something that people go, you got to see Emma. Word of mouth just carries itself. And so 
there's there even are hybrids in between fully branded and fully independent, which are called soft brands. That's an autograph, you know, that's a curio or canopy for Hilton or or for Hyatt. It's called Unbound, and there's varying even levels in between that, where you can still brand it independently. It can still be the the you know it can still be the drover, but it can be it can have a booking engine behind it that is Marriott or that is Hyatt, you just wouldn't necessarily know it. Like the Driscoll happens to be an Unbound connect collection Okay, that's actually a Hyatt hotel. So it's got that booking engine, but it, can, it allows it to maintain its independence. Got it. So you don't ever see the word Hyatt that's associated right. with it. That's right. So And there's different fee models all the way along that, right? there. I mean, at the end of the day, they're a sales organization. They're going to figure out a way to be involved one way or the other. I haven't been to Hotel Emma yet, but our team did a retreat there last year, and the feedback I had was unbelievable i I guess not the lobby but like the bar area is huge with couches everywhere they just couldn't stop talking about it yeah it's pretty special i mean the the that that's also the again you know there's a guy named bill shown silver ventures who right he he had the right mentality i mean at the end of the day it's like how do you i mean it was all about the customer experience it was thinking about every step they took what they smell when they walk in the door what the guy is wearing the words they use, that that are used when they're greeted, the found objects that you see everywhere, the the, the way they recycled all of the brewery equipment, those types of things that we were able to do as a part of that were just became just just built on. I mean, and it just caught fire. And and you know there are, there are going to be a lot of people who are going to look at the look at San Antonio and go, hey, Emma's already done it. Let's go figure out how to draft off them. I don't think that works. Really? I, I really don't. I just it, it, that's one of one. I just I'm in the middle of the book Unreasonable Hospitality and as you oh, yeah. and as you've been just describing that it made me just think the world is not it's not just in hotels but hospitality no matter where you go matters now in yeah. retail I mean mm-hmm. office is going to have 100%. to become hospitality experts what are things that come to mind like what are ideas that you have or passions you want to pursue within hospitality that you think are going to kind of matter over the next 10 years and then we'll talk a little bit about f&b and stuff but what ideas do you have like I, what's not working what's working what should be happening i'd, pr- I'd probably actually pivot i mean th- th- i could kind of talk through the hospitality side some of which i talked about if we were thinking about how you manage an asset like is there a different way to do that if you had somebody who is a long-term employee at a hotel and who's invested in building a relationship with every person that walks in that door because you know they're going to be there for 10 or 15 years, yep. that, that's a different type of hospitality that can be extended. That's hard when it's an hourly employee who's moving on to the next job or moving up the ladder or going somewhere else. And so if I was, again, if I was just thinking outside of the box, how do you create a model like that where where it, it can. I mean, through every person that's in that hotel, whether it's the janitor that your dad would see or whether it's the steward or the housekeeper, but they are invested in saying, how do I make sure you have an unbelievable experience while you're here? Or at least, if nothing else, just feel cared for, right? Which is kind of at the end of the day, that's what that's what hospitality is. But I'd almost translate it to, to investing. And if I were thinking about investing differently, because you know, th- at the end of the day, that's what that's what we do. We're not necessarily hotel operators. We have to invest in hotels, but but the investing side is the one where I would think about it differently. I and I've thought about this a lot, just to go: Could you create some type of entity where it's just it's just got a radical giving philosophy, where it's saying, "Look, we're gonna we're gonna invest 
we're going to invest in a hotel, but but the lion's share of the profits for that entity are to support this mission. And and I think that could be at the fund level, that could be at the asset level, it could be a lot of different ways. But w- when I think of like transformative things, though, that's what I think about is how could you create an infrastructure that would almost say, look, the business is running just to power these missions, just to be able to give that money away, just to be able to do all the things you'd want to do in the, in the community that you could dream of. Those are the types of things when I think about investing that I get pretty excited about and I go, okay, but, that's the model that I'd love to be able to have like-minded investors who go, yeah, let's do that. Yep. Let's, let's figure out how to do that. I think that's becoming, we were talking to a family office not too long ago, and they said something along those lines, which was, would you be interested in taking either a percentage, a couple percentage points of the GP or a percentage points of the return and giving it to X? Yeah. And for me, it was, okay, why? What, what does that well, for them, the, it was important that it went to a certain, and once they told the whole story, it made a lot of sense. And then, you know, we don't have to talk about generosity tends to create cool moments for everybody involved yeah. because yeah. again, there's nothing more contagious than a generous person and seeing that in action. You said employees are being around forever. I went to Mayakoba Rosewood mm-hmm. for spring break. Mm-hmm. I haven't stayed at one of your hotels, except I did on my, that's um, right. I guess at Hyatt Hill Country, but recently, best experience I've had, my wife would tell you, bar none. And if you and if we were really digging in why, most of the employees there have been there 15 or 20 years. Mm-hmm. And what we it was our first time, but you just listened to them. They knew all the guests right. because all the guests come back. It's like a big family. Right. Ton of Dallas families there. It's like we come, we've come for spring break 12 years in a row, and we know. Yeah. It was a, you couldn't replicate it because they were family. They knew everything and they had been there for 15 or 20 years and loved the property. Like they probably loved, you know, their family in a way. It's it's why certain steakhouses have career waiters because they do so well at making you feel connected. You're like, well, why would we go to a different restaurant? Let's just go back. Yeah. Let's go back to that place. Cause we're known there. The cheers thing, I suppose. I was talking to, uh, uh, John Marsh and he was saying, you know, America's done a pretty bad job of making the hospitality service work industry seem like a step to something greater. Mm-hmm. And he was explaining to me that in Italy and some of these world-class hospitable countries, people grow up wanting to be a service member in hospitality as a career, a waiter, a waitress. And once you go to these restaurants, they're j- it's like a whole act. It's like a way of life. Mm-hmm. And they wouldn't do anything else. And somehow in America, we kind of made it to where being in service is maybe just a step to get to the next thing. Mm -hmm. And so I was just kind of asking him, you know, how do you solve this? And he just said, said, there's obviously programs. I can't remember what they're called, where you can bring in foreigners to work in when they come from places where hospitality is really celebrated. Mm -hmm. But I never had thought about that in America, we we've made some of these jobs that in other countries is such a staple mm-hmm. seem like a stepping stone. Yeah. And honestly, there's, there's two sides of that coin, like every coin, but, but no matter how thin it is, but <laughs> I, I think part of that is if you think about, I think that's part of the beauty of the hotel industry actually, is that it's one of few where you can start as the bellman and, and in a number of years, you can actually become the GM. Yep. happens over and over and over again. And that, I mean, that is part of like how yep. our, our you know country has built is this idea that, hey, 
the American dream as possible and achievable for you. And so I, I think he's his point completely valid. But on the other side of it, there is beauty in the ability of a guy who could say, look, I had a high school education, but I went and I was a, and I started in, as a dishwasher where where I started and then can work their way up to the point where they're like, hey, now I'm running the hotel. Who would have ever thought that was even possible? Where, where does y'all's line of influence end? So you said we're a hotel investor, not an operator. Yeah. Where does y'all's line of defense end? Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, I think it's pretty broad, but it is for us, it is developing and acquiring hospitality primarily. Okay. And so in that scenario, it's every brand, it's up and down the chain scale. It's from a resort all the way down to what we were talking about earlier, a select service hotel. Now that that's kind of category A. Behind that is office, behind that's industrial, behind that is multifamily. In a much smaller way, we really try to kind of diversify into those categories. Okay. And I think in some way, every element, maybe except for industrial, we've tried to figure out how do you take the hospitality side and allow that to influence what we're doing in each of those other categories. I have to mention the hot word office. Yeah, sure. You guys actually own some. Yeah. What are your thoughts and how might hospitality play? What are you seeing? What What are folks going to need to think about over the next decade yeah. to make a successful office building? You know, I mean, I, I'll just, my philosophy, largely uninformed. Let's just start with that. <laughs> the, the, uh, I think I, I'd say a couple of things. If you think about a hotel, if you think about when you order room service, Right. You're, you're, the way it has always worked is you have a tray with a bad flower with, some, you know, some, a tin can on it, right? All the, yeah. Now that works. And then, and then it's left out in the hall. It's yeah. really not a great, not a great experience. Like all the way around, like doesn't make you go, that's what I want to do is order room service. Yeah. Now, if you go to, you name it, a great restaurant here in, in Fort Worth and you order something to go. It's going to be well-branded. It's going to have a great logo on it. It's going to be crisp. It's going to be nice. And you're going to have it in a brown paper paper bag, even if it's from Nick and Sam's, right? It's going to have that type of thing. And then you take it to your room and and you'd enjoy it. And that's not a diminished experience. So I think from a, from a room service standpoint, that can, that can really, that can really parallel connecting the dots there. You go into an office building and not to be critical of, of the, the workforce necessarily that's powering that, but most often, every office I go into, the very same. Big grand lobby, great big piece of modern art, two leather chairs with some silver arms on it that are like oddly in the middle of a bunch of light. <laughs> then then this, this, like, this like cherubim, cherub-like thing where the security guard sits behind it, who, by the way, may or may not look up at all if you're walking through odds are probably not unless they have to check your id and then they're like pissed that you're that they have to check your id i'm like that's not my rule (laughs) and and their suit you know is ill-fitting with a patch and you know that that says you know security guard Uh, that's not a good look if you walk into a hotel doesn't matter what kind of hotel is there's nothing like that whatsoever it's open 24 hours a day, does not have a lock on the front door, and you do not have a security guard in a bad-looking suit saying, welcome to the Marriott. Instead, you've got somebody in a badge behind the desk welcoming. As soon as you walk in that door, they're saying, that if they know your name, Mr. Powers, right? Come on, welcome in. We've got your room ready. Even if they don't, they're going, how can I help you, right? That's the type of experience that I would expect to translate. That's just, that's just good old-fashioned Southern hospitality. Is there a reason why it doesn't? Exactly. 
I don't think there is because the, the, it's not a cost thing. Exactly. Because you're paying that person one way or the other. I'd rather have if I'm hiring and somebody shows up to an interview, ill fitting suit, looking at their phone, doesn't make eye contact with me versus this really charming personality who says, great, I'll do the exact same job, except I'll be right there in that door when they come in. And I can say, hey, last year for Valentine's Day, you, you did your, you, we did this for your wife. Do, we, do you want me to go grab you flowers? Like, how hard is that? That, that's something that I feel like should happen in the office game. So we did that with the office tower we have downtown. And I'm telling you, that individual is the spark that kind of holds that place together because everybody knows him on the way in. He runs the elevator. He punches the door. A guy named Braden, who's a veteran. Now, actually, it's a guy named Broderick Simpson because Braden went to Mississippi with his, to be with his wife's family. Makes sense. But Broderick's a guy that went to high school with my older brother. Big personality. Everybody loves Broderick Town. He's like one of those things like that person holds that building together. Everybody knows him. that type of experience. Again, there's nothing magical about that in a job description. What's magical about that is like you walk in the door and you feel known, you feel cared for, you feel understood. And now they're taking you up to your office space. That's where the two can merge, in my opinion. Now, everything else, by the way, is about design. Yeah. Like, why would I want the the design I described. I'd much rather have pictures and history and communal tables and coffee and all these other things because that's what I want to walk into. Nobody wants to walk into a nice chamber where you're like, okay, I feel like I can't touch anything. I think you've answered like, what are the lessons to be learned? There is people want to be around people and in a comfortable situation. <laughs> they want to be heard. They want to be seen. Yeah. And like the, the billions of dollars of fine marble and right. art is not actually why people are interested in your place. Right. Right. And that probably is a bit of tension that you kind of a healthy bit of tension that you carry with you into every decision. It's sure. like, what's the perfect balance? That's right. Because you can have great community, but just God awful building. And mm -hmm. sometimes that doesn't work either. Mm -hmm. Let's just talk about kind of full service urban these kind of it what to me seem like you're seeing a lot more of them these really hospitable places with restaurants and bars and it seems like you could just travel there and stay in that building the whole time and have a great time obviously more complex to operate probably a lot more revenue streams like yeah. how do you think about those yeah i mean at the end of the day that type of operation as much comes down to f and b as anything food and beverage. And so what what we've seen just in general is kind of what I was talking about earlier, even alluding to the room service thing is the, the guest is just too savvy, right? They know if I'm in a hotel restaurant versus if I'm in a restaurant operated by Fort Worth's own Tim Love, right? You're, you're going to walk in there, you go like, this place is different. Yeah. Service is different. The food is, is a different quality. Like, like something's going on here that just feels different. Yeah. And that's why that's why it'll generate traffic from from outside. But if you've seen kind of like the, the link that makes those hotel those types of hotels special is not necessarily how great the room design is, although usually it's pretty decent, but it doesn't have to be like four seasons. It's really about what people are enjoying in the in the common spaces. What's the lobby like? What what is the environment like there? What's the coffee like? What's the barista like? What's the restaurant like? What the, what how the craft cocktails that the bartender who knows every whiskey you've ever heard of? Right. Who can serve that with like authority? Those are the types of things that I think it's pretty interesting. What's your maybe? OK, here's a question. What's your favorite hotel <laughs> and why is it your favorite hotel and you can't own it? OK, I, I would say I would say Chicago Athletic Association. In Chicago, naturally, 
th- that that is just it is one of those hotels where they've got. I mean, the food and beverage is a, th- is a third party. Yeah, it was designed by a group called Roman and Williams. It's owned long term in a partnership with the Pritzker family. It and it's just got all the intangible qualities. It's like it's historic. It is. It's unique. It kind of. All the stuff, the, the the branding, the rooms, everything kind of builds off of this idea that it was once an athletic club. It's almost one of those things where there's just a sense of discovery for the guests around every corner. The bar, the speakeasy, the found furniture, the books on the wall, the big fireplace, the, the exterior architecture, all those things compound on itself to just give you this experience where you're like, I don't need a resort at all in that scenario. I can just be in Chicago, you know oftentimes not the best weather and still feel like this place is just magical. So from your perspective and what y'all do at Woodbine, do y'all work with the designers that design the hotel? Do y'all work, do y'all sign the leases with the third party F&B or is that what the manager's doing? So- 100% Woodbine. At the end of the day, we feel like we're a curator, right? Our job okay. is to, so we're working with the design team to set the direction to say, this light switch, not that light switch. This color duvet, not that one. This headboard, not that. I mean, it, it's working hand in hand with them to be able to say, here's the vision we want to accomplish. Here's our North Star. Help us get there. Good example of that is at Hill Country, we were, we were designing it. And I, I mean, Chip and JoJo are legit, you know, in terms of their this kind of modern farmhouse thing. Yeah. And our design team was kind of going down that direction. And I was like, no, no, like we're not there. This is not, this is not a farmhouse. This is a ranch. So let me help you understand that design direction. And the only way you can do this, like pulling pictures from the King Ranch and from four sixes and from all these other places go, this is what a ranch feels like. It's not white shiplap wood. It's green. It's, you know, it's, it's not black iron, right? It's, it's rusted metal. It's, it's these, so it's a, it's a, kind of similar vein but a very different you know trail i guess so those are the types of things where we'll try and set a north star and then and then let them run all right we're getting we're coming down the finish line i think it would be important to get your take on this though how do strs play into the whole picture yeah well look like dallas just axed them didn't they they did there is there's some regulation that's going on with airbnb and the others here's the thing more broader, what what industry has seen like legitimate existential threats, you know, in multiples over the past decade more than hospitality? I'd argue none, right? You, I mean, short-term rental is one of them, Airbnb, VRBO, the pandemic. <laughs> you, yeah. you, you just go down the list and there are there's one thing after the other that you look at the hotel business and go, man, those are like major, major headwinds. But yeah, I mean, look, the, the reality is that when you look at how demand has been impacted by that, there was there was some kind of shadow economy that the, that the hotel business did not understand existed because so many people are staying in friends' houses. I mean, because the, the hotel occupancy has not seen a major dip because of that. it's hard to, because of what we've gone through, it's kind of hard to tie the two together. But at the end of the day, it, it feels like the, the, there, is, there is room for that category in our business. And, and, you know, look, if, if they're treated the same way we're treated and they've got to have the same ADA requirements, they have to, to file the same taxes, they have to have all the same types of restrictions that we do that are major barriers to developing an asset, I'm all for it. Yeah. If they don't, I'm like, well, that's, that's not a level playing field and that doesn't feel like that, that ought to be true. But I also think a business traveler is going to go, you know what, 
as nice as that was, like having to find the key, you know, not having this amenity, not having that place where I'm not sure of where I'm going, not, th- I think that's kind of sorted itself out in those categories of travelers who probably started to separate. All right, let's just kind of bring it home on just what's going on in today's market. Like what, you could talk about it from a capital markets perspective. You could talk about it just from how assets are performing. Like what's your view of how y'all's hotels are performing and just what's your broader view on how that, what that means for the economy and the market. And You know, the way I describe it is the hotel, the hotel businesses is a, it's a hard business to compete in. And you have, you have fewer lenders, you have fewer equity partners, you have all the reasons that I talked about. You have an operating business on top of a real estate business, which becomes even harder for people to understand or invest in. And so there are, there are a lot of headwinds in it. But, you know, even though from a top line perspective, hotels are performing probably as good, if not a little bit better than they did in 19, that's just, that's just top line. That's just saying the occupancy is is better than it was. And generally, the average daily rate that you're paying per night for a room is probably a little bit higher than it was in 19. But nobody talks about, you know, if you will, under the sheets, right? <laughs> you get down to the bottom of that balance sheet and and you're looking at the NOI line and you've got rising labor by a, by a significant factor. You got interest rates that have, you know, nearly tripled. That's that's major NOI margin reduction. That compression is kind of those things where I describe it, it's like, look, you're just outrunning the alligator that's closest to you. That's it. You're just you're just outrunning it. Yep. And right now, frankly, in the hotel business, you kind of take that win and you go, let's <laughs> let's beat inflation and let's keep going because a lot of other assets aren't doing that because you're in a fixed lease for ten years. Our leases happen to be a day and a half usually. Yep. And so you do have a legitimate hedge against inflation in that case. And so that, I think that's a compelling case for why hospitality makes sense in a market like this. Have you all seen the equilibrium kind of balance out at what you can charge for rooms? I know, I mean, through most every asset class, rents have been going up. I mean, industrial's been nuts. Multifamily went up. I remember mm-hmm. seeing my first hotel bill in 2021 when we went on our first vacation. I was like, I thought these rooms used to be 250 a night. They're 700. <laughs> have you guys seen a top out, or is it still mainly due to seasonality, or have you guys reached a top? Yeah, you're still you're still able to push a yeah. little bit, but but that's gonna that that'll taper. I mean, I think I think you're you're seeing probably consumer pullback in in general that that probably hasn't gotten all the way to hotels yet because there's still a lot of discretionary spending and leisure travel in the summer is generally where people are going to, you know, really kind of start to spend. But I, th- I think that's coming. I think, I think as we see, you know, consumers begin to get a little more concerned, Hey, interest rates are a lot higher, you know, discretionary spending is a lot harder. Right? Maybe, maybe we ought to, maybe we ought not to do four nights. We might ought to do three. Maybe we shouldn't do the resort. Maybe we should do the other one you know, the select serve hotel or whatever else, those are the types of things that I think we're going to start to see changing. So I, I, we're probably right at that point where you're going to see a serious slowdown in, in leisure travel, I think. This has been fascinating. Obviously, admire the hell out of you. And, and we've talked a lot offline. Let's, let's maybe wrap it up with some advice that's helped you along your career. Again, it's been characterized by uh, many great men, people, and your faith in the Lord. So what's kind of something that you think carries you through the day that you pass on to others? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm probably not as much one for advice in, in what we would kind of think of that as in the traditional sense. I'd, I'd probably 
go to the source if I were going to think what, what was what's kind of the thing that's most inspired me maybe and and that's from probably some really early challenges that that I faced you know even as a kid but there was a verse that that I kind of stumbled on in high school I got I got injured in a, in a in a game and you know when you think you're like that was all of the world revolved around that which you probably would have been the starting quarterback at Monterey High School if you kept <laughs> love it Coronado oh Coronado even better Coronado you know, I, I would, I'd probably go to Romans five, three through six, which is the, 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 it's basically says you will rejoice in our trials because trials leads to perseverance, perseverance leads to character and character leads to hope. And I think from, from my perspective, there are, I mean, we face challenges every day in our business. We face challenges, you know, with deals that we shouldn't have done with partners that we shouldn't have partnered with, with things like that. And I think there's, and, and of course, when you're going through a two years of a pandemic and then you're on the brink of a recession, you know, you're really looking at and, and kind of one of the central tenets that we've got to maintain is this idea of perseverance. Like you got to be willing to say, I'm going to go one foot in front of the other. I'm not looking up, I'm looking down and I'm, and I'm eventually I'll get to the top of that hill. And so from, from our perspective, that's really where I've said, look, we're going to rejoice in those trials. Because that's going to lead to perseverance. Perseverance is going to develop our character as a company, as an individual, as a family. And that's going to lead to hope. Hope not in ourselves and our ability to do it, but hope in the one true God who says, I got this. And, and at the end of the day, like for, for my faith journey, trusting in Christ with that hope, that's, that's been the thing that you kind of say, the, the phrase that many people have heard, that's, where you, that's a piece that surpasses all understanding. And that hope is the thing that we've kind of leaned on to be able to say, it's not us driving this business. It's it's really 100% in the Lord's hands. As much as we want and try with all our might to control the outcome, and I'm no different than anybody else in that regard, but if there were a, if there were a piece of advice, if you will, I'd, I'd, I'd definitely go to the source on that one. Thank you for an amazing conversation. Yeah, thanks a lot. This was great. Appreciate it. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Fort Podcast. Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform or hop on over to YouTube to watch full video episodes if that's what you prefer. For more information, you can check out thefortpod.com.